From the creator of the acclaimed Celebrate Poe podcast comes an audio journey into the life and works of America's greatest poet, Walt Whitman. Discover Whitman's cosmic perspective and how he captured the spirit of democracy through his groundbreaking verse. Join me, George Bartley, as I explore Whitman's impact on our culture. Official premiere for Celebrate Whitman is July the 4th, 2024. Thank you. Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 43, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. The opening melody is Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song, Come Rest in This Bosom. Now, this month's episodes are about some of the English writers who heavily influenced Edgar Allan Poe, especially the English Romantic poets. My name is George Bartley, and I'd like to thank you for downloading this podcast, and uh, please consider subscribing, if you haven't already, and, and writing a review. Now, this podcast is the first of two episodes about William Wordsworth. That'll be the last of the first generation of Romantic poets that we'll be covering in this podcast. Now, try to remember a country and western B. Now, stick with me on this one. CWB, country and western B. Now, Celebrate Poe has had episodes about the C, Coleridge, and B, Blake. So, today is the last poet in this first group, William Wordsworth. So, at the risk of sounding repetitious, remember C-W-B, Country and Western B, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Blake, or whatever, mem- whatever memory aid helps you remember C-W-B. Later, this podcast will deal with uh, Poe's literary relationship. That'll be several months from now uh, with uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And I used to confuse the two men, William Wordsworth and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I had to stop and think for a minute. Think of Henry Wadsworth like uh, he shot his wad, but this is William Wordsworth like Taylor Swift's wordplay in The Lakes, Tell Me What Are My Words Worth. I will definitely talk more about Wordsworth as well as Taylor Swift and The Lakes later. But just remember, Wordsworth is the word man. So you want to get word in there when you're saying Wordsworth. First, I'd like to apologize for the delay between podcast episodes, but uh, it became apparent uh, very quickly when doing this podcast that I was going to have to go uh, into the Romantic poets, especially Byron, to begin to understand Poe's life and works. The big difference is that I've spent years learning about Poe, and I still have, uh, have to refine my information and delve into it a lot deeper, because there's so much information out there about Poe. I know some of it passes itself off as historical, but is so full of biases that it is little more than judgmental gossip. I started out doing doing the last episode thinking uh, that I was going to compare Poe's drug usage to Coleridge's drug usage. thought, well, that would, that would be an interesting topic. They were actually both heavy users, according to some sources. Well, I did go into Coleridge's drug use, 
uh, but uh, any drug use by Poe is almost minor in comparison. In other words, it, it all seems so obvious when I look back on it, uh, but these episodes were going to take more time. Uh, one more part to this introduction. You may have noticed in my show notes for the last episode that I made a huge mistake in the script for the last episode. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, covered with molasses. And I ask you to find it, uh, that I would tell you what it was today. Well, answer. <laughs> the mistake, as I put it, a whopper of a pronunciation error, more than usual, uh, was in the actual title of the episode as well as the body of the text. I was quoting Coleridge's Kubla Khan and was so hung up on trying to get the accent right that instead of saying, the chasm was covered with mosses, or mosses, I said, the chasm was covered with molasses. Now, Coleridge's might have, Coleridge might have had some spacey images in Kublai Khan, but I'd be highly surprised if he visualized a chasm or valley oozing sticky strawberry jam or grape molasses or molasses. Uh, when I made the mistake, I stopped to edit it out, but then I decided just to go ahead and leave it in and see if anybody noticed. Anyway, getting back to the Romantic poets, I simply didn't realize that there was so much information out there about the Romantic poets, and I didn't have the background that I have with Poe. Now, let me emphasize, not that I have or will have the knowledge and uh, perception of uh, a person who's been a Poe scholar for decades and decades, but at least with Poe, I wasn't starting from the ground up. Uh, in this way, in a way, this is an advantage because uh, I was basically experiencing the Romantic poets for the first time, and it gave me a sense of what it must have been like, that kind of excitement for Poe as a young boy to experience the Romantics for the first time. We know that Poe read a great deal of the Romantic poets as a young boy in England, and Poe later emotionally responded to the ideas of the Romantic significantly in his writings, as he added his own unique spin on their works. In summary, experiencing the Romantic writers was a really heady experience for Poe. So, doing episodes on the Romantic poets, while certainly exciting, is taking more time than I realized at first. I was hoping that I could have an episode out each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but with the Romantics, it looks like it might take a little bit longer. And I thought at first I was going to be able to do each Romantic in one episode easily, and it was going to be hard to find enough information. But I can see now it's definitely taking at least two episodes uh, for each of the Romantic poets. I found that the best way to deal with a Romantic writer is to script out both parts of a two-parter to judge the length. Uh, that way, it's a lot easier to present topics chronologically. They're more logical, and then you can edit out parts that just don't further the narrative. Most importantly, there is less a chance of content suffering from unnecessary repetition or omission. But I should be finished with doing episodes about the Romantics, uh, and that's from a podcast perspective, this month. And I'll be uh, getting back strictly with Poe and his fac uh, family after they come back to the United States at the end of this month. I'm still going to try and stick with a three-episode-a-week timetable, barring any emergency and I ask for your patience.
Hello, Mr. Bartley. Glad you guys are here. I had to fill in some time there, and it felt like you'd never get here. Well, welcome, Mr. Coleridge, and, and welcome, Mr. Wordsworth. Now, the importance of our major guest for today, Mr. William Wordsworth, to Romanticism cannot be overstated. It is doubtful that there would even be a Romantic movement without Mr. Wordsworth. Do you think that's a fair assumption, Mr. Wordsworth? Or perhaps that might be a bit of an exaggeration. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and there are many gifted writers who composed works of great literary merit, but I would be most remiss if I did not mention Mr. Coleridge. After a chance meeting in the northern part of England, we became the best of friends, and during a discussion decided to collaborate on a composition we called Lyrical Ballads. Mr. Wordsworth, would you comment on the unique nature of the title of your collaboration, Lyrical Ballads? Yes, Mr. Bartley. Uh, The term Lyrical Ballads uh, is a most interesting expression, as you might say, an oxymoron. A lyrical refers to emotion or expression, and ballad refers to a narrative story. So the two words are often thought of as diametrically opposed concepts. Uh, Yes, Mr. Coleridge and I shared a common perception of the natural world and were passionately committed to the preservation of the natural areas all around us. One might say that you were writers with a strong ecological bent. Oh, more than that. We believe that one could describe nature and landscape by means of the mind. Let's go back to your earlier life, Mr. Wordsworth, the time before you wrote lyrical ballads. I was born on April 1770 in the scenic area in northwestern England known as the Lake District. My dear sister, Dorothy Wordsworth, was born the following year, and we were baptized together. What about your father and your grandparents? My father was a legal representative of James Lothar, the first Earl of Lonsdale. My father, therefore, held a most distinguished position, and his connections allowed him to live in a large mansion. He was often away from home on business, so my siblings and I remained rather distant from my father throughout our early existence. Due to my father's connections, we lived in what what, what must have been the largest mansion in our small town. Fortunately, my father did encourage my reading, especially the classics, works by John Milton, Edmund Spencer, and the great William Shakespeare. I was most fortunate uh, in that my father allowed me to utilize his considerable library. I also spent time at my mother's parents' home, where I believe I was first exposed to the Moors. Unfortunately, I did not get along well with my grandparents, a constant source of worry and distress. My desire to get along with them was so intense that I even contemplated suicide regarding the matter. I began attending St. John's College in Cambridge. I have strong doubts that I would be considered an excellent student, 
you know, to utilize your current terminology, I did just enough to get by. Later, I went on a walking tour of Europe where I toured several areas of France, Switzerland, and Italy. Uh, yes, I walked several thousand miles uh, during the walking tour on foot. It was most invigorating. Now, now, one must remember that this was shortly before the Republican movement in revolutionary France. I, I fell intensely in love with a French woman, Mademoiselle Annette Vallon, who gave birth to our daughter Caroline. Unfortunately, tensions between England and France worsened to the point that I was forced to leave the country for legal reasons as well as financial problems. And I was most disillusioned by the violent developments of the French Revolution. At first, I was most enthusiastic about the struggle for liberty and equality in France, but became extremely disappointed when the efforts became a reign of terror, one of fear and blood, not noble efforts. But I did try to support Mademoiselle Vallon and my daughter for the rest of my life. Did you ever see your wife and daughter again? Oh, yes, Mr. Bartley. Fortunately, in 1802, travel to France was allowed again. I, I traveled to France with my sister Dorothy to visit Mademoiselle Vallon and Caroline. I wanted to prepare them for the reality of my future marriage to Miss Mary Hutchison. I had never seen the nine-year-old Caroline before, and I will always remember our walk on the French beach at Calais. I wrote a sonnet regarding our meeting on the beach, and five years later it was published, this was after 1802, five years later it was published in a collection simply called Poems in Two Volumes. Uh, the sonnet is as follows... It is a beauteous evening, calm and free, the holy time as quiet as a nun breathless with adoration. The broad sun is sinking down in its tranquility. The gentleness of heaven broods o'er the sea. Listen, the mighty being is awake and doth with his eternal motion make a sound like thunder everlastingly. Dear child, dear girl, that walkest with me here, if thou appear untouched by solemn thought, thy nature is not therefore less divine. Thou liest in Abraham's bosom all the year, and worshipped at the temple in her shrine, God being with thee when we know it not. Well, uh, Mr. Wordsworth... What were the circumstances of the meeting between you and Mr. Coleridge? Oh, yes, Mr. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. We quickly developed a close friendship after meeting in Somerset. Now, one must remember that my sister Dorothy and I lived at Race Down House in Dorset. My dear sister and I would walk in the area for almost two hours every day, and the beautiful hills consoled Dorothy as she pined for the fells of her native Lakeland and dealt with her homesickness. She wrote, 
we have hills which, seen from a distance, almost take the character of mountains, some cultivated nearly to their summits, others in their wild state covered with firs and broom. It was during this time that Mr. Coleridge and I became even closer friends and collaborated on lyrical poems. I also associated with Mr. Robert Southey, and as a result, uh, we have come to be referred to as the Lake School Poets, uh, a literary designation that I understand Mr. Bartley will discuss in more detail in the following episode of this podcast episode. Uh, that one will be entitled Taylor Swift, The Lakes, and What Are My Wordsworth? Uh, now, uh, as an aside, uh, I certainly know what the lake area is, and I would like to believe that I know what are my words worth, but who or what is a swift tailor, or, or, or a tailor swift? Uh, could that be a reference to a tailor who sews at a rapid rate? No, Mr. Coleridge, I would prefer to address that topic during the next episode of Celebrate Poe. Now, returning to lyrical ballads, in the first edition, Mr. Coleridge wrote four of the poems, and I wrote 19. Though, in all fairness, Mr. Coleridge wrote the longest, and perhaps uh, the literary work that has become the most famous, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I believe we discussed that poem in, uh, I guess it was, episode 41 of Celebrate Poe. Yes, Mr. Bartley and Mr. Coleridge, I would like to read several of the poems that I wrote for Lyrical Ballads. First, Expostulation and Reply. Why, William, on that old grey stone, thus for the length of half a day? Why, William, sit you thus alone and dream your time away? Where are your books, that light bequeathed to beings else forlorn and blind? Up, up, and drink the spirit breath from dead men to their kind. You look round on your mother earth, as if she for no purpose bore you, as if you were her first-born birth, and none had lived before you. One morning thus, by Esthwaite Lake, when life was sweet, I knew not why. To me my good friend Matthew spake, and thus I made reply, The eye it cannot choose, but see, we cannot bid the ear be still. Our bodies feel, whate'er they be, against or with our will. Nor less I deem that there are powers which of themselves our minds impress, that we can feed this mind of ours in our wise passiveness. Think you, mid all this mighty sum of things forever speaking, that nothing of itself will come, but we must still be seeking. Then ask not wherefore, here alone, conversing as I may, I sit upon this old grey stone and dream my time away. And secondly, a companion verse on the very same subject, called The Tables Turned. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double 
the sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster meadow, though through all the long green fields has spread his first sweet evening yellow. Books, tis a dull and endless strife, come hear the woodland linnet, how sweet his music, on my life there's more of wisdom in it. And hark, how blithe the throstle sings, and he is no mean preacher. Come forth into the light of things, let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and arts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil, and of good than all the sages can. Sweet is the law which nature brings our meddling into intellect, misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art. Close up these barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. Mr. Wordsworth, I do have one request. Could you read, And We Are Seven? That is one of my favorites. And could you speak regarding its meaning? Certainly, Mr. Bartley. We are seven. A simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb, what should it know of death? Now, one may assume that childhood is a time of innocence. A child would not really know a great deal of death. Can a young child really understand what death means? How often have adults told children that when someone dies, that person has gone away to another place instead of telling that child the truth? Central to my poem is that the child only has a partial understanding of death, but an understanding that is nevertheless quite comforting. By the way, this poem is based on a real-life encounter that happened to me during a walking tour in 1793. As you know, I tended to walk a great deal. Uh, The author Thomas De Quincey estimated that I walked almost 200,000 miles in my life, which was about 2,500 miles of my adult life, or almost seven miles a day. But returning to the poem, the narrator begins, I met a little cottage girl. She was eight years old, she said. Her hair was thick with many a curl that clustered round her head. Now the young girl is fair and beautiful, though dressed wildly as if she did not quite belong to the more civilized areas. She had a rustic woodland air and she was wildly clad. Her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad. The narrator then asks about the girl's family. The girl points out that several of her family members have gone away to sea, and the girl's brother and a sister are in the church graveyard. Uh, Now, that might be rather nosy, from what I understand today, uh, if someone began asking a child questions of a similar nature. Sisters and brothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many? 
Seven and all, she said, and wondering looked at me. And where are they, I pray you tell? She answered, Seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea. Two of us in the churchyard lie, my sister and my brother, and in the churchyard cottage I dwell near them with my mother. The narrator continues probing the young girl, pointing out what he feels is faulty logic on her part. You say the two at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea, yet ye are seven. I pray you tell, sweet maid, how can this be? Then down the little maid replied, Seven boys and girls are we. Two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. You run above, my little maid, your limbs, they are alive. If two are in the churchyard laid, then ye are only five. Their graves are green, they may be seen, the little maid replied. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door, and they are side by side. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit and sing a song to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. The narrator continues to emphasize his logic, ignoring the fact that child mortality from cholera to consumption was unfortunately a reality to the girl's family and something that just had to be accepted. The first that died was Sister Jane. In bed she moaning lay till God released her of her pain and then she went away. So in the churchyard she was laid, and when the grass was dry, together round her grave we played, my brother John and I. And when the ground was white with snow, and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go, and he lies by her side. Now like a cruel adult who was trying to destroy the little girl's faith, the narrator insists on causing the little girl to admit that her brother and sister are no longer living. How many are you then, said I, if they too are in heaven? Quick was the little maid's reply, Oh, master, we are seven. But they are dead, these two are dead, their spirits are in heaven. "'Twas throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will, and said, "'Nay, we are seven. "'Now, during the years since my early life, I have seen the poem, "'I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud,' be viewed as my most popular work. "'And I know that poem, also known as Daffodils, "'is the title of this podcast episode.' So it seems only appropriate for me to end the first of two podcasts regarding my works with I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. The poem was inspired by an outside walk on the 15th of April in 1802. My sister Dorothy and myself encountered a long belt of beautiful daffodils. My sister wrote a journal entry regarding the flowers, an entry that inspired me to write the poem. Dorothy wrote, 
When we were in the woods beyond Galbarrow Park and we saw a few daffodils close to the water's side, and we fancied that the lake had floated the sea to shore and that the little colony had so sprung up. But as we went along, there were more and more and yet more of them at last under the boughs of the trees. We saw that there was a long belt of them along the shore, along the breadth of a country turnpike road. I never saw daffodils so beautiful that they grew among the mossy stones about and about them. Some rested their heads upon these stones as a pillow for weariness, and the rest tossed and reeled and danced and seemed as if they verily laughed with the wind that blew upon them over the lake. The poem that I wrote was first published five years later in Poems in Two Volumes. The original volume was poorly reviewed during my earthly life, but uh, this poem has not only become my most well-received, but also by many is felt to be one of the most famous poems in the English language. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on higher, higher veils and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet! could not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought, for oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Thank you, Mr. Wordsworth. Now, sources for this episode include the Delphi Complete Works of William Wordsworth by Williams Wordsworth, Romantic Ecology, Wordsworth and the Environmental Tradition, William Wordsworth, Bloom's Modern Critical Views by Harold Bloom, William Wordsworth in Context by Andrew Bennett, William Wordsworth's Poetry, A Reader's Guide by Daniel Robinson, Wordsworth's Ethics by William Woodsworth and William Potkey, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by Arthur Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Poe in Place by Philip Edward Phillips, and the book and CD Accents, A Manual for Actors by Robert Blumenfeld. And check out my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. That's celebratepoe, all one word, celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Just click on the episode that you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. Well, thank you very much for making it thus far as we take a deep dive into the life and times and influences of America Shakespeare and how he has influenced our world. Join us for the next episode and learn more about a literary giant who greatly influenced Mr. Poe's works, 
Mr. William Wordsworth. Experience what many people feel was Wordsworth's greatest poem, as well as William Wordsworth's interesting connection to Taylor Swift in the lakes. Yes, the singer Taylor Swift.